please open your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, in which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. You may be seated. Lord, we, we pray the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, please help me, guide me, and bless all the members of this congregation. I pray that you'd empower us. What we are doing here is a spiritual act of worship, so we need the Holy Spirit to help us. We can do nothing apart from you, O oh Lord, so please be merciful to us. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. When we, we think about election, elections, E-L-E-C-T-I-O-N, in case the accent confuses you, election. When we think about elections, a lot of times the, the primary things that come to our mind is Presidential elections, elections to place a president in place. So we are just prone to automatically, when you think about elections, to think about voting for a president or a governor. And the thing is, with all these elections, they're always conditional. We elect presidents based on conditions. We vote for presidents Grounded on conditions. Which party he is. Oh, what are his ideas? What are his philosophies? Maybe his past. So we never vote for somebody without conditions. We are voting for a president grounded in conditions. Right? Uh, and the same in every sort of club that you're part of. If you have the, the, the privilege of voting. And even in the church. When you're voting, we are looking for conditions for membership, conditions for eldership, deacons, finances. We, we are looking at these things. And I think that's one of the reasons we, why it's so offensive when we try to understand divine election, God's election, because it's unconditional. And because we are so ingrained in we from the moment we are conceived, we are already so selfish, believing that it's my freedom, my way, and I have the right to do this, I have the right to do that, and, 
And when it comes to this doctrine of unconditional election, it's really hard for us to accept. It's not hard to see because it's all over the Bible. It's hard for us to swallow and digest and accept. And that's why it's so important to start where we start with sin. The primary doctrine is the doctrine of sin. And that will open the way for the other doctrines to come. So as we start thinking about the doctrine of unconditional election, the first thing we realize is that this doctrine is a controversial doctrine. There is much controversy in the history of the church when it comes to the doctrine of election. But that's no excuse for not studying or embracing and, and trying to understand. Because let me remind you that every single major doctrine of the Christian faith has been under controversy. The deity of Christ has been under controversy. The Trinity has been under controversy. Justification by faith has been under controversy. So, brothers and sisters, it's not because a topic is controversial that we have the excuse for not studying, not trying to understand. So when Christians avoid the doctrine of election and predestination because of its controversial nature, they are not expressing wisdom and godliness because sometimes people try to express their wisdom and godliness by not going there. Actually, they are showing themselves to be lazy and unwilling to do the hard work of studying the Scriptures. And John Calvin has some very wise, wise comments about this doctrine. And he tells us about two dangerous extremes when it comes to the doctrine of election. The first is excessive curiosity. That we should not do that. Excessive curiosity is to go where the Lord has not revealed to us. And that's what happens. People want to go to aspects of divine election and predestination where God has not revealed and it's not for us. The other extreme is excessive fear an inhibition that leads to the lack of study, delight, and knowledge of the doctrine of predestination, predestination and unconditional election. So th those are the two extremes that we need to avoid. I remember reading about Spurgeon, and back in his day, many, many years ago, and he argued that the fact that the doctrines of grace, and especially the doctrine of unconditional election and predestination, because these doctrines were no longer being preached, that's why the church was going downhill. Why? Because as soon as you remove God from His place as the sovereign one, you place whom there? Men. And then there is no way for the church to prosper when you have men in the center. So, we have no excuse. We need to study. It's there. It's a, it's a doctrine that we must delight in. And we need to use all the faculties that the Lord has given us to try to understand as much as we can. And like any single doctrine in the Bible, to embrace and love and treasure. But it's not only, I would not only say that it's controversial, it's a despised doctrine. People despise the doctrine of unconditional election, predestination, uh, I speak for myself as one before coming to the doctrines of grace. I was hostile, angry towards the doctrine of unconditional election. Why? Because that removes the man from the center. 
I'm making the choice. This doctrine offends men's sense of freedom. Men protest against this doctrine because it offends his ego. Especially for Christians in America where it's all about my freedom of choice. That's really, really hard to digest. When no, God is over you. God is more sovereign than you are. But not only, I would say, controversial, rejected, but it's a fundamental doctrine. The doctrine of unconditional election is fundamental. It's basic for the Christian faith. If you want to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, you need to grow in your understanding of the doctrine of election. This is like milk for a baby or meat for an adult. Uh, I love how Beaky and Smalley, they write, they say, the crown jewel of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, and we all believe in God's sovereignty, every Christian, but here's the key. The crown jewel of the doctrine of God's sovereignty is His election of those whom He will save by grace. Election is one side of God's predestination of all people to either salvation by grace or damnation according to justice. Like a diamond reflecting the sunlight, election sparkles with God's glory shining from Jesus Christ. He says, out of this fertile ground grows the tree of life that Christ is for His people by His death and resurrection. From this fount springs the river of all the Spirit's blessings that sanctifies us in this life and will glorify us in the age to come. All saving grace begins in divine election. And it is a basic doctrine. It's a basic doctrine. It's very fundamental. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 7, as we are coming to the first books of the Bible, there, the first five books, we learn, the Lord says, For you are people, Moses writing, For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has what? Chosen you to be a people for His treasure possession. Bahar the Hebrew, and this word is used more than a hundred times with reference to God's sovereign election in the Old Testament. And as we move to the New Testament, the words eklektos, proheritsu, eklegomai, related to elect, choose, predestin to predestine, are also frequently used for God's choosing people for salvation. The word for elect, out of the 22 times using the New Testament, 17 refers to God's people whom we elect for salvation. So you see, it's a basic doctrine. It's a fundamental doctrine. And it's a welcoming doctrine. That's the type of doctrine that you do not need magnifying glasses to try to find in the Bible. It's not like a, a doctrine hard to find in the Scriptures. The doctrine of sovereign election, unconditional election, God's elect is everywhere in the Scriptures, and especially in the opening of many books of the Bible. It's a welcoming doctrine. So, <laughs> it's just like those mats that you place in, in the entrance of your house. That's how it is. It's just to welcome you. Here, you're welcome. So, you see right in the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 7, when we hear Moses saying that the Lord chose you. 
Or Jeremiah 1.5, right in the beginning of Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew. We are going to see that this word refers to love, to select, to elect someone with a loving election. Or we can see in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, but God chose, God chose, God chose, God chose, right in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Or in the beginning of Galatians, but when he who had set me apart before I was born, election. Paul is talking about his sovereign election. 1 Thessalonians, right in the beginning, 1-4. We saw it in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 3-5, 1 Thessalonians 1-4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he, what? he has chosen you. 2 Timothy 1. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Sovereign election, right in the beginning of 2 Timothy. Or Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of whom? God's elect. Huh. First Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those who are elect. Second Peter 1. Therefore, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Second John 1 John 1.1. The elder to whom? The elect lady. Do you see? It's like you start opening the book and it's right there. Hello, elect. You don't need magnifying glasses to try to find this doctrine. It's all over. And always welcoming us into the books. So it's a welcoming doctrine. And why are we talking about that? Uh, why would we be talking about unconditional election? First of all, because it's in the Bible. And second of all, because we are talking about who we are as a church. We are a Reformed Baptist church. So what does it mean to be Reformed? And we are looking at the, one of the major aspects of the Reformation was to bring these scriptures back to the pulpit. And as soon as the scriptures are open, guess what? The doctrine of election was speaking out loud. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Unconditional election. God's grace alone in the salvation of sinners became a fundamental motto of the Reformation. And salvation by grace alone is defined by the doctrine of unconditional election, gracious election. So, Cornelius Vinema, he says, contrary, contrary to the medieval Roman Catholic Church's teaching that fallen men, fallen, fallen human beings retain a free will that is able to cooperate with God's grace and merit further grace, even eternal life. So, in contrast with the Roman Catholic the reformers insist that the fallen human beings are incapable of performing any saving good. Then he says, according to the teaching of the leading reformers, salvation begins and ends with God's gracious initiatives in Christ. Human merits, achievements, and performances contribute nothing to the salvation of fallen human sinners. And then, so we can think, why are we talking about unconditional election? Oh, because we are a Reformed church. And what does it mean to be Reformed? To have the teaching of the Scriptures 
dictating the life of the church, of the Christian. So, unconditional election, the doctrine of God's unconditional love and gracious predestination of some unto salvation was in the heart of the Reformation because this doctrine is in the heart of the Bible. That's why. And as we continue developing the, the acronym TULIP, we saw last Lord's Day, we finished with total depravity, and then now we move logically and consequently to which doctrine? Unconditional election. So the doctrine of total depravity showed us that we have nothing. We have nothing, no power to accomplish salvation. There is nothing in us that can somehow bring salvation. That's the horrible news. Remember Mark chapter 10, with man is what? Impossible. But it is what? Possible is God. Oh, praise the Lord. So we have a God who is powerful, but He's not only powerful, He needs to be merciful. That's the thing. Yes, we have a God who is all-powerful, He can accomplish salvation on our behalf, but that's not enough. He needs to be gracious and merciful. So the first thing that God does for us in our total inability is to choose us. That's the first step. He needs to choose us. Because if He doesn't choose us, done to you. So that's, once you understand the doctrine of total depravity, that begs, it's crying out for the you, unconditional election. God, you need to save. And I don't deserve. So then what? I need an unconditional mercy and grace. I deserve wrath and hell. So you see how the first point leads and bags the next one. So here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We're going to be following for the next Sundays the same outline that we saw in Total Depravity. So we're going to see unconditional election defined, unconditional election verified, and then unconditional election applied. So let's start with the definition. Unconditional election defined. So, the fact that God elects or predestines some people, that's undeniable. You, you cannot deny that because it's in the Bible. Amen? We, we read here Ephesians, we read other, other texts where it says that God chose, God elected, He predestined. So that's just undeniable. You cannot deny that. The, so, so the question is not, does God elect some? The question is, on what basis? On what basis God predestined and elect some people? Amen? Are we, are we good here? Because even Armenians, even those who reject this doctrine, you need to deal because election is in the Bible. So, so the question is not, there, is there election? Of course there is. The question is, on what basis? On what basis God chooses some people? So in 1610, the disciples of Jacob Arminius stated that God chose some men to be saved on the basis of His foresight. So people who are chosen and predestined are those whom God He looked ahead with His futuristic telescope and He saw, oh, I see that Hannah one day will accept Jesus. So she is elect. So that was the doctrine of conditional election. That's why we have unconditional election. It was a response, it was an answer 
to that false teaching. And that's how most Christians in America today, they understand the doctrine of election and predestination. Is that God chooses people because He foreknew, He foresaw that Lee one day would accept Jesus. So Teresa, she is a chosen one because she first chose Jesus. So that's how the doctrine of election becomes. It's a conditional election. That's why the first attack always, always goes to the doctrine of total depravity. Do you see? Man got to have his free will. The free will, the will was not affected. So that's why the first fight is in the doctrine of sin. On the contrary, we believe that the unconditional election teaches that God, the triune God, before the foundation of the world, and with reasons known only to himself, by his mercy and grace and for his glory, he chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of his undeserved favor. He chose to save some and exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners for salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his own good pleasure and sovereign will. That's what it means unconditional election. And we see passages like Ephesians 1 that we saw, that he chose us, he predestined us, and doesn't say anything that he chose us or predestined us because he saw that we were going to accept him. Doesn't say anything like that. Or you can turn to your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and you can see from becomes very clear. Paul says, in order that God's purpose for election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it's written, what? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because he knows that people are going to argue that. And his answer is, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will. Right there. Right there. Or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. So the doctrine of unconditional election, first the word unconditional, means without previous conditions. It's not based on any human achievement. That's why this teaching is also called gracious election or sovereign election. There was nothing in us that merited that choice. In Romans chapter 9, we see Paul saying the same thing. He says, depends not, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In 2 Timothy 1, he says that he called us, that's a saving call, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And then Paul tells in Titus 3, just going back here, he says that God 
saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renew of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we mean by unconditional. There is nothing, nothing. If, if, if God was looking at something that we are going to do, nobody would be chosen. Nobody. The word election, so we saw unconditional, the word election from the Latin electio, to pick out, choice, choosing, speaks of God's sovereign and gracious work of choosing some sinners to be vessels of mercy. So unconditional election is that aspect of God's eternal decree of all things in which He sovereignly and lovingly selects according to the incomprehensible counsel of His will alone and nothing good in us, those who He will effectually call, justify, sanctify, and glorify by union with Christ. Amen? Are we clear here? Yeah, as clear as we can. So let me just continue talking a little bit more about this, uh, this topic, and it's important here because as we talk about election, predestination, there's another word that it's used in theological circles, reprobation. But, but let's just think about predestination, and we know that we cannot escape that. Predestination is in the Bible. I, I remember a young man, he was with his father in, in and they were arguing with me about the doctrines of grace. So they, were, they told me that they did a Google research why Calvinism and the doctrines of grace were evil. And as we were talking, and I remember this young man saying, predestination is not even in the Bible. I was like, oh, my friend. Open in Ephesians 1. And then he opened in Ephesians 1. And I remember his face as he saw the word predestination there. And he looks at his dad like, whoa, dad, it's here. And the dad had to come up with something else. Yeah, it says predestination there, but it's, that, that's not what it means. Right? So, yeah. So, to predestine, the word literally means to decide beforehand, to predetermine. And Christians, they get so scared and fearful of the doctrine of predestination that they change predestination for what? Post-destination. Or post-determination. So it's not that God is orchestrating all things. God is after. After you do something, then God ordains that. After your choice. And you know that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Predestination, uh, as we can see here, can be used as this broader, I would say a broader term, predestination speaks of God's sovereignty over all things, how He predestined all things, all things are under His control, and yet He's not the author of sin, as we saw in the Bible study with the women yesterday, God is in charge of all things, and yet He's not the author of sin, so predestination is this doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things, orchestrating all things. And under the doctrine of predestination, we have election and rep reprobation. So election refers to God's choice to save some fallen sinners and to grant them faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior. Reprobation, from the Latin reprobatio, to reject, refers God's choice to not save others, but to leave them in their sins. And that's what the Bible teaches us. 
So, Venema, he says, in this understanding, reprobation is not exactly parallel to election, but it is a manifestation of God's justice. Although God's will is the ultimate reason for the salvation of some and the non-salvation of others, the proximate reason for the non-salvation of the reprobate is their own sinfulness. Election especially reveals God's mercy, whereas reprobation reveals His what? His justice. And we must understand that no man deserves salvation. No man deserves salvation. And I think that's what's hard for us to swallow. We want to believe that man is good. Everybody deserves a, a, a chance. God abandoned some sinners in their sins. And that's righteous and holy and good. So for example, in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25, uh, Eli is crying out for his sons to repent and change and turn. And says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. God did not cause them to sin. God chose to show justice towards them. And when he puts sinners to death, he's glorified. Right there. They did not repent, for it, for it was not the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord was to put them to death. That's the God whom we worship, brothers and sisters. We have created a God that's all loving and nice, right? In Exodus, we hear about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I like what one scholar says. God's hardening of sinners does not consist of endorsing them or motivating them to sin. For God only gives good gifts and can tempt no one to evil. Rather, divine hardening involves God's withdrawal of those blessings that would restrain a sinner from certain sins. So, election and reprobation both depend on God's will. Election is according to God's grace. It's undeserving. It's in Christ. And God comes and changes us. There is a, a, a personal interaction of God. Reprobation is according to God's justice. It's deserving. It's in Adam. And that's where God does not come to intervene. Ah, but that's doctrine of man. That's what the reformers taught, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. So, Peter says, they stumble because they disobey the word. And why do they stumble and disobey the word? Because they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. Peter here, uh, people are going, oh, the destined. Yes, this word destined is the same word used in verse 6 when it says that God destined Jesus to be the, the stumbling block. It's the same word. God destined Jesus, God destined those who will not receive salvation. So Peter shows that there are two groups, those appointed to condemnation, those appointed to salvation. Jude, in the book of the letter of Jude, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, 
I found necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated, written before, for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. In Romans chapter 9, verse 13 and 22, Paul says, As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau what? I hate it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make, he, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that both Esau and Jacob were both filthy, nasty sinners. There was nothing good in Jacob. Actually, many of us would choose to have Esau as our neighbor than Jacob. And before they were born, before they did anything good or evil, what do we hear? That God chose Jacob. And God needs to come and destroy Jacob in Genesis 32. And destroy him to, rem to remake him as a new man. So, we see how God's sovereignty. So, reprobation. Reprobation is the aspect of God's eternal decree of all things in which He sovereignly selects according to the incomprehensible counsel of His will, which people He will abandon to their sins, not by indulging, indulging them to sin, but by freely withholding, inducing them to sin, but freely withholding His unmerited grace, and will just lead them forever because of their sins to the praise of His glory. Revelation says, also, it was allowed to make war on the saints, meaning it was allowed by whom? By the sovereign one. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth. We worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been what? written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Jesus similar tells his disciples, remember they come all joyful for, from that mission trip, all excited about the demons being cast, and Jesus says, rejoice not. Rejoice not on these things, but rejoice. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in that book up there. And let me ask you, can anybody go up there and write your own name? <laughs> no. The Lord is not adding names. Then those names were written before the foundation of the world. So people believe in Jesus because their names were written in His book. So let me ask you, are you embarrassed, uncomfortable right now? Let's be honest. So, you know, these doctrines can be pretty embarrassing. People can become uncomfortable with that. <gasps> Reprobation. Sovereign election. And then a great number of Christians, they're so embarrassed with this doctor that they try to excuse God. And then what do you do? You make the narrow road all broad. And suddenly we, we are the ones making the narrow way broad. And we cannot be doing that. So here are some objections towards the doctrine of unconditional election. So the first one is that God is unjust. If God does that, He's unjust. There is injustice with God. 
How could God save some and not others? Paul knew. Paul knew very well that there would be the question raised. And that's why in Romans 9, he says, What then? Shall we say that there is injustice with God? Why? Because he knows once he brings up the topic of unconditional election, people are going to raise their hands. That's not fair. God is unjust. And what does Paul say? By no means. By no means. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He's God. The only way to see the doctrine of unconditional election as something unjust, unfair, or perverted, and that's how I used to see, is if one maintains that God was under obligation to provide salvation for all sinners, a position that the Bible utterly rejects. Nowhere in the Bible you see that God is under the obligation of providing salvation for every single sinner. The triune God has no obligation to save anybody. Therefore, election does not make God unrighteous because God does not owe mercy, but He distributes as He pleases. God always acts in mercy, justice, but never with injustice. And some Christians, they picture God as this, this father who is going to the orphanage, and He becomes this philanthropic Santa Claus that he has all the means to provide for all the 100 kids in the orphanage, but then he just chose 50. 50 kids, but what a mean guy. All these cute little kids in need of a father, and you have all the means, and you're just choosing 50. That's a bad metaphor. That's a bad illustration. Because we are not cute little kids in the orphanage. A better illustration would be seeing God go into... Uh, <laughs> The maximum security detention penitentiary, and there you have a hundred men uh, in the death row because of heinous, gruesome crimes that they committed. And they all deserve to be put to death, rightly so, and yet they receive mercy. How about the other ones? Can they complain? No, they deserve the justice. Mercy is something that nobody deserves. So we often hear, it's not fair. How can God not give that person a chance? And we think like that because we have the Declaration of Independence above the Bible. We think that Thomas Jefferson's words are more inspired than Paul. For many Christians in America, the sentence is that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Suddenly, that's more inspired than the writings of the Scriptures. We want to believe that we are free to choose God, that we have the right to either accept or reject God, and that we have the right to be happy. That's not what the Lord teaches us. Gerald Bray, he says, we live in a world... We live in a world that has been pro programmed, programmed to think that everyone is entitled to receive benefits of one kind or another. And so we think that's unfair if some people are excluded from them. When it comes to eternity, the default position for us is salvation, not damnation. And we are puzzled if not offended to be told otherwise. Then he says, 
the trouble is that if we think like this, we cannot even begin to understand the Bible. From its point of view, the default position of man is not heaven, but eternal death. And the fact that anyone is saved from that is, that is a miracle of God's grace. The Bible gives no comfort to people who want to think that everyone is saved. So the question could not be in our minds, wow, how, God, how could God just save some? But how could God save any? Uh, why would God save some? No, no, why would God save any? Any. By nature and action, we deserve eternal punishment. God's never unjust. Never unjust. So, the objection that God is unjust, there is injustice in God, is more emotional than biblical or rational. Thomas, Thomas Neros, he says, Our sentiments may run against such a conclusion, but no one can deduce from biblical exegesis that man deserves any more than eternal condemnation. In fact, John 3.18 concludes that all that the man, all humanity, is already condemned. So is God unjust? No, by no means. By no means. God can be considered unjust only if it can be proved that those he condemns deserve the salvation that he unconditionally gives to some. If you can prove that by saving some, and the others deserve salvation, then yes, you, you can say. But the Bible has no space for that. Everybody deserves hell. That's why it's called sovereign grace. The sovereign grace of God. Spurgeon says, the grace of God is sovereign. By that word, sovereign, we mean that God has absolute right to give that grace where He chooses and to withhold it when He pleases. He's not bound to give to any man, much less to all men. The second objection is that unconditional election violates my free will. Man, to be predestined, that's going to violate my free will. And we saw with the doctrine of total depravity that the only freedom that we have apart from God's grace is the freedom to sin freely. The only free will in salvation is God's free will. And we praise the Lord that He intervenes and changes our hearts so we start desiring Him. Amen? So remember that the only free will in salvation is God's free will. <laughs> the last one. So that's how most people see the doctrine of election, sovereign election, predestination. God foreknew that I was going to choose Jesus. So for many Christians, they say that foreknowledge means that God foresees in the future who will accept Jesus. So election is based primarily on God. Think about that. God getting His futuristic glasses and seeing, oh, I can see that Macaul is going to accept Jesus one day. Therefore, she is a predestined. She is an elected one. Because God foreknew. He foresaw it. The problem with this is that it gives all the glory to man. Because then election and predestination is based on man's choice. And the second problem is that you don't find that in the Bible. That's the problematic aspect. So they use texts like 
First Peter. So First Peter 1 through 2 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And then he says, look at that, according, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. <coughs> Do you see? They are elected because of God's foreknowledge. Amen. Amen. Or they use Romans chapter 8, where he talks also about being elect, or says for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And said, Do you see? Right there. They are predestined because God foreknew. Amen. But I, I haven't seen anything there saying that God foreknew that they would accept Jesus. That's the first problem. There is nothing there saying that he foreknew, he had a foreknowledge of whom would accept Jesus. The second problem is the word to know or to foreknow. That's a, the major issue that we have here. Because throughout the Bible, one of the main meanings of knowing someone is to have a special love towards that person. A deeper intimacy. In Genesis, we read that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived a son. Huh. Was that the intellectual knowledge? Oh, I know Eve. No. He's talking about covenantal relationship. Something very deep. To have a baby. Sam Storms, he says, Often in the scripture, to know has a meaning beyond that of mere cognition. It's used in a sense, practically synonym with to love, to set regard upon. To know with peculiar interest, delight, and affection. Then he says, thus, to foreknow is to forelove. That God foreknew us means that he set his gracious and merciful regard upon us. That he knew us from eternity past with sovereign and distinguish, distinguishing delight. God's foreknowledge is an active, creative work of divine love. It's not bare prevision that merely, that merely recognizes the difference between those who believe and those who do not believe. God's foreknowledge creates that difference. Brothers and sisters, think about that. The Bible often speaks about someone knowing that person that has nothing to do with just mental cognition. It's about a covenantal relationship. So we, we read, Adam knew his wife. There are other texts we're going to see as we walk through the Old Testament. But think about Matthew chapter 7, when those who will come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And what will the Lord say? What will the Lord Jesus say? I never knew you. But wait, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. What is he talking about? I never loved you. We have never had a covenantal relationship. That's to know. That's why the Bible says, according to his foreknowledge, means to his previous unconditional love that he set upon us. That's why we are elect and predestined. So, to foreknow in Romans 8, 1 Peter 1, is to set a covenantal love prior to anything else. God pre-loved his elect before any good works on our part. John says that we love him, why? Why? 
We know him. Why? Because he first knew us. Same thing. We chose him. Why? Because he first chose us. It's not that difficult. It's hard to swallow. <laughs> but look how Peter says. Let me finish here. And you start seeing how this doctrine of unconditional election is not for people to be debating and creating havoc, but it's a very comforting doctrine. Peter writes this letter to people who are being persecuted, suffering, under harsh treatment. And he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are what? Elect exile. The doctrine of election, predestination, is deeply comforting, sweet, encouraging, such a calming doctrine that Paul, Peter, John, Jesus frequently use the doctrine of unconditional election to comfort those who are under tribulation. It's because of God's foreknowledge, His forelove, His pre-love, His prior covenantal love towards us that we are elect. And because we are elect of God, we are what? In this world. What does Peter say? Exiles. Because we are elect by God in Christ, we are exiles in this world. Storm says, to be an exile is to be rejected. To be elect is to be selected. But there is no contradiction here. God's people are rejected by this world precisely because they have been elected by God. God made them exiles in the earth, resident aliens, when He chose them out of the world for Himself and destined them, destined them for an eternal and heavenly inheritance. We become exiles here. We suffer here. We're persecuted here. This is not our home because, because God has elected us in His grace and His mercy. Brothers and sisters, this doctrine of sovereign election, predestination, should never be, should never be a source of embarrassment. Never be a source of embarrassment. If you're embarrassed about this doctrine of election, predestination, reprobation, it's because you don't know who you are in your sins, you don't know the power of sin, and you don't know the grace of God. That's the only reason why you would be embarrassed about such doctrine. It should never be a source of anger, doubt about God's character, but it's a doctrine of deep comfort, immense joy and delight. The doctrine of election, because it's, it's always presented in the Scriptures as the ground of comfort. I like what James Edwards says. He says, predestination is a doctrine not of tyranny and terror, but of assurance that God is for us and that He ordains to bring believers to the glory of His Son. And every time we suffer in this world, we are persecuted, we are reminded that we are exiles. 
at the same time we are reminded that we are what? Elected. Predestined for something much greater, much more beautiful than what we are going through. You see, uh, I, I have never heard my kids coming to me and say, Daddy, why don't you love the kids in the neighborhood the same way that you love us? I never came to my wife and said, why, do you, why don't you love other men the same way that you love me? That would be weird, right? Why would you do that with the Heavenly Father, with the triune God? We should take great comfort, great joy, great delight that Though we don't deserve anything, we deserve hell, He has set His love upon us. And this doctrine will humble us. Praise the Lord that He does not elect us like we elect presidents. May we be always overwhelmed by His unconditional love towards us. Father, we... We are indeed brought low to the dust so that you are exalted and magnified, Lord. Thank you for having mercy and grace upon us. Who are we to accuse you of injustice? You are in the embodiment of justice. And at the same time, you are the embodiment of mercy and grace. And Lord, as we study this marvelous doctrine, I pray that this church would be humbled by unconditional election. The last thing that we want you is to be an arrogant, prideful church. We know our state in Adam, dead in sins and transgressions, hostile towards the things of God. We give you all the glory and all the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.